0: Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East Program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters.
1: This week on Babel, John speaks with Ambassador-at-Large for Global Criminal Justice Beth Van Skok about accountability in Syria. Then, the newest member of the Middle East Program staff, Lubna Youssef, continues the conversation with John and
0: Natasha. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Beth Van scock is the State Department's Ambassador-at-Large for Global Criminal Justice. She's a former visiting professor at Stanford Law School and the former executive editor of Just Security, an online forum for the analysis of national security, foreign policy, and rights. Beth, thanks so much for joining us on Babel. John, thanks for having me. You have spent a lot of your career looking at atrocities, and one of the central ideas that you focused on is the idea of accountability. What does accountability mean in your mind?
2: I think accountability means a lot of different things. The simplest meaning is that individuals who are responsible for grave human rights abuses or the Commission of International Crimes should be held responsible in some way, in a formal manner, for what they have done and how they have harmed others. But if you take the field of transitional justice more broadly, we know that accountability can mean a number of things, including having truth available to victims as to what happened to them, their loved ones, why a particular repressive regime was put in place, how it operated, why they were chosen, all of those sort of open questions that often really leave victims and survivors wondering why they were targeted and why they had to be subjected to what they had to be subjected to. We also can think about it in terms of reparation and rehabilitation. So giving forms of redress to victims to enable them to restart their lives, psychosocial rehabilitation, livelihood assistance. Individuals who've experienced mass crimes have had their life plans dramatically disrupted by these events. And then we can also think about things like guarantees of non-repetition. So what sort of measures should be put in place to reform institutions and to ensure that a society does not backslide. So accountability can mean a lot of different things. My office tends to focus on criminal accountability, but we're also really mindful about supporting other or more broad forms of restorative justice in addition to retributive justice.
0: So it's easier to do that in a situation where the people committing the crimes lost. But when you have a situation like in Syria, and you've thought a lot about Syria, it feels like the people who've committed the crimes have won and they have jurisdiction over their own country. How do you think about accountability, not for losers, but accountability? for victors, over whom you have limited leverage.
2: Indeed, Syria presents a real conundrum when it comes to the question of accountability. There are no options internally. The Assad regime is unlikely to put its own agents on trial for the many abuses that they are responsible for and that have been documented as being responsible for. So then we have to turn to the international level or to courts in other jurisdictions. At the international level, as I discuss in my book and as is obvious, the Security Council has been largely foreclosed from really implementing any forms, of course, of measures at all against Assad. Even this question of humanitarian corridors has been limited significantly by Russia's willingness to step in. And so when the Security Council was considering a referral of the situation in Syria to the ICC... Russia, with China in tow, was able to block that through the exercise of a double veto. So then we now have to turn to international courts. And this is where we have seen incredible strides in mostly European courts, but not exclusively, where prosecutorial authorities in Europe have opened structural investigations, so broad-based investigations, into the situation in Syria. They've started to press charges against individuals who are found in their midst, when they have jurisdiction over those individuals, and they've been able to feature the testimony of witnesses, survivors, and victims who are also within their territory and beyond. And much of this work has been facilitated by non-governmental organizations, civil society organizations working together, but also the somewhat inexorable interconnectedness networking of European prosecutorial authorities, using things like Eurojust and Europol, these prosecutorial authorities are increasingly interlinked. They're sharing information, they're sharing techniques, they're watching each other, they're learning from each other. So domestic courts are now increasingly adept at prosecuting the Commission of International Crimes, even when the events happened abroad and there's no connection of nationality with respect to the key protagonists in these trials.
0: As you think about Syria, how is Syria different from other conflicts you've looked at or worked on?
2: Well, it's extremely complicated as from the perspective of who the players are on the ground. In some respects, the Ukraine conflict is a classic international armed conflict. You have an aggressor state, Russia, engaging in a full-scale invasion of a second state. And there are formal Armed forces embattled with each other. To be sure, there are informal forces as well and territorial defense units, et cetera, but it's old school law of armed conflict territory. Syria was quite complicated given the proliferation of armed actors. We had the sort of democratic opposition, but then we had ISIS and a number of splinter groups connected with each side. Then there's a whole scale intervention and involvement by other states. Russia, obviously, in support of its client state, Syria. We now have Turkey engaging and threatening incursions in the north, and then the United States supporting some elements of the democratic opposition
0: and you have Hezbollah.
2: Exactly. Then you have other transnational organizations that want a piece of the action. And so it's incredibly complicated, even from the perspective of conflict classification, but also identifying who is responsible for particular incidents, and then imagining any form of not just accountability, but even transitional justice. So the Assad regime, is it committed at all to reintegrating individuals who were forced to flee or who left or who associated with the opposition in some way. At the moment, it seems like not. And so you're going to end up with a society that has deep, deep fissures. And those fissures are unlikely to resolve themselves. And so that's where the field of transitional justice should be helpful. But So far, Assad has shown no interest at all in utilizing those tools, those techniques to think about what a genuine reconciliation could look like and what the integration of the full populace could look like. He's emerged triumphant, as you say, and as a result, we'll have refugee populations that will be very reluctant to return.
0: So you're in the State Department and you're the global criminal justice person, and there's a Syria policy that is largely, but not entirely, managed by the New Eastern Affairs Bureau, where does accountability, the kinds of ideas you've talked about, where does it fit into the U.S. strategy on Syria? How do you work your way into the process? How do you work your concerns into the process of a broader U.S. policy towards Syria?
2: Indeed, there are limited prospects for accountability particularly in U.S. courts because of limitations within our own domestic law and the fact that there are not a lot of perpetrators that are going to slip through our immigration nets. It may happen and we may be able to move forward against certain cases, but I do want to emphasize that accountability broadly defined remains a key pillar of U.S.-Syria policy. It's just stymied by the fact that we don't have the ability to utilize the ordinary multilateral institutions that we would be able to use because of Russia's willingness to shield its ally Syria. So the United States is tracking very carefully these universal jurisdiction and other cases that are happening in European courts. And we have been reaching out to prosecutorial authorities looking for ways to be supportive. We've also funded a number of civil society organizations that are doing documentation like the Syrian Justice and Accountability Center or the Commission on International Justice and Accountability. These civil society organizations are collecting information to a criminal law standard, preserving it, authenticating it, creating dossiers, doing refined analysis on that information, and then sharing that with prosecutorial authorities around the world to jumpstart their processes. So they don't have to learn the Syrian conflict from scratch because these NGOs have been working on these issues for many years with continued funding from the United States. And so that's a way we've been able to continue to push this. And those of us in this field know that the goals of justice and accountability really is a long game. We're playing a long game here. We're very committed to keeping the prospects alive. And that's why these documentation efforts are so important. There is no statute of limitations for war crimes or crimes against humanity. Prosecutors around the world have indictments at the ready. And as soon as perpetrators start to travel, which they inevitably do after these conflicts, they want to go to Paris and shop. Their kids are going to college somewhere. They have a reason to travel. They're attracted by investment. For whatever purpose, prosecutors will be at the ready with indictments in hand.
0: Let me go even broader on the U.S. government piece. Just before the 2020 election, you wrote a piece arguing that the U.S. government needed to have a much more organized and disciplined approach to atrocity prevention, including having a group at the White House that was focused on the issue. As you've gone from an advocacy role to a government position, what do you feel the easy wins have been to get people to think about atrocity prevention, accountability, What have people been most welcoming of that in some ways, maybe from the outside, you've been surprised, have been easy wins for getting people over to your position?
2: I've been really heartened to see this administration re-embrace the atrocities prevention and response imperative In fact, I feel in many respects a wind at my back in a way that I didn't even during the Obama administration. It's really a core commitment of this administration. And it's made it easy for me to work with partners across the department and then across the interagency to put forward ideas, innovations, suggestions. And they've been picked up and people have been really keen to move them forward. So our Ukraine policy is very much about accountability. The atrocities prevention task force has been reinvigorated, and we've actually made it much more multilateral. There's an international atrocities prevention working group that meets on a regular basis. It met in The Hague a couple of weeks ago, and we'll be meeting again during UNGA high-level week to try and multilateralize this work. So in that respect, it's been really good to see Ukraine is a great example. There's been real serious resources put towards promoting accountability for the war crimes and other atrocities being committed by Russia's forces in Ukraine. And this includes the creation of the accountability crimes advisory group with the UK and the EU. It's a really unique model that is ensuring that in doing our programming in civil society, et cetera, that we are highly coordinated across Europe, the UK, the United States, Our implementing partners are working together on the ground in Ukraine, working with the prosecutor general's office there in order to advance accountability in domestic courts, but also being a part of the Eurojust network and other international networks also focused on accountability. The Dutch recently hosted a ministerial in which this work was featured and in which states were encouraged to better cooperate, to ensure against over documentation to protect against underinvestment to make sure that witnesses and victims are not being interviewed multiple times all of this was of a pace so we're really moving into kind of a, a state of the art when it comes to coordinated focus amongst allies and partners when it comes to accountability
0: as you think about syria policy there seems to be a way that a lot of the world is coming to accept the fact as we've described assad has essentially won certainly not going anywhere in the near term As the U.S. thinks about what early recovery means, about sort of normalizing the reality of Syria, how do you ensure that there's always an element of thinking about accountability and transitional justice and all those things in a process that is really driven by bilateral relations and trying to accommodate a broad number, especially of regional countries, that have already begun to engage with Bashar al-Assad. How do you ensure that your views are included and your concerns are included as the policy moves forward?
2: Indeed, we have seen indications that some states are willing to consider moving towards a posture of greater normalization with the Assad regime. That is not the U.S. position, But to a certain extent, there's only so much we can do in that regard, particularly when it comes to the regional states. But there still is an opportunity, I think, to try and advance ideas around transitional justice. And that includes when we get into a stage of reconstruction, that certain elements of support for the Assad regime, if reconstruction and if multilateral support to reconstruction is being contemplated, to make that conditional on him accepting certain obligations as The sovereign to welcome and to create a more holistic and broad-based coalition of Syrian society and to uh, find ways to welcome back individuals who had had to cross an international border because of coercive acts within their particular communities, to make sure they can take their property back. Property is an area of transitional justice that is often quite acute for families. If their property has been seized, what is the incentive to come back? so for Assad to reverse some of those orders that did involve taking property from individuals who had left the country, there are lots of ways in which reconstruction assistance can be conditioned on Assad at least making some moves towards reconciliation. I did not mean to imply that it would be the United States engaging in reconstruction, but to the extent that friends, allies, and others are They should be conditioning their participation and investment in Reconstruction on seeing genuine moves towards transitional justice to ensure that the the next Syrian society is much more inclusive than the society that Assad had been presiding over, which was what gave rise to the revolution all those 11 years ago.
0: Let's look forward now. With ubiquitous video capabilities, social media, we have more evidence of these kinds of atrocities than we ever had before and people can get numb. What do you think needs to be done so that what we're seeing either in Ukraine, in Syria, is a tipping point for engagement on atrocities rather than people saying, you know what, the world is a horrible place, I'm going to pay attention to the Kardashians.
2: It's a really compelling question and I think there's a real possibility of psychic numbing that can happen when people are overwhelmed with stories. And that's where I think we may need more art (laughs) than we have. I think cultural expression can be a way to activate different parts of our brain in a way that kind of mind-numbing statistics don't. And so Syria has had a vibrant artistic community and they're still engaged in trying to capture the reality of the horrific violence that was unleashed within their communities. And I think there's ways for the international community to continue to support that. We also need to hear more individual stories so that people are not kind of homogenized into numbers and statistics, but actually can describe what they experienced. Now, one of the major open questions has been what to do about the disappeared and the detained. There are still hundreds and thousands of people who have not been accounted for from the Syrian conflict.
0: My understanding is more than 100,000.
2: Right, the numbers are staggering. Many of them may still be alive in either formal or clandestine detention centers that are run by the Assad regime. They may be being held by other armed groups. They may be dead and buried somewhere. Their bodies never to be found the families have an open wound and it has not been helped by Assad's regime's really cruel practice of issuing death certificates. And then months or years later, actually releasing the person. And suddenly the family learns that they had actually been alive all this time and in detention or releasing a death certificate with very vague information. And so families are never quite sure what happened. And there may be always that little tiny hope that the person is still alive. We call this ambiguous loss and it's incredibly painful for the families. And so this is one way where if the Assad regime is really committed to being reintegrated into the international community, he could create a system where families could be told genuine, true information as to where their loved ones are. If they are dead, what were the circumstances of what happened to them? And if they're alive, where they are and what the plans are for them to have either a genuine justice process or to ultimately be released as a humanitarian gesture and a gesture in keeping with international human rights obligations that Syria has taken on by way of its treaty commitments. And so this is an open wound that I think is going to make it very, very difficult for Syrian families to feel fully integrated and an opportunity for the Assad regime to show some good faith here. There's a movement afoot now amongst the survivor communities to Work with the international community to try and create some sort of a mechanism to enable this type of information sharing. It's not an accountability mechanism per se. It's really motivated by a humanitarian ethos based upon the rights of families to know the truth of what happened to their loved ones.
0: It sounds like grueling work that you're doing, important work, but grueling work. Are there things that you found you have to do to sort of to recenter, to become passionate again, to avoid the numbness from thinking every day about the fact that thousands and thousands of people are suffering.
2: It is difficult work, and those of us who are drawn to it have to be incredibly careful about our own self-care. I'm quite familiar with the concept of secondary trauma and secondary taking on the trauma that you learn from others. Even though the events have not happened to you, they can nonetheless be internalized. And my team has gone through a training with a former colleague of mine at Stanford who works on vicarious trauma. He's worked with lawyers, with judges, with advocates and others to teach them how to recognize when you've hit your own limitations on this work and also how to engage in certain coping and self-care mechanisms. What I find really important, and I always recommend it to my students who are interested in this work and to my colleagues, is to have some sort of a physical practice So I am a longtime yoga practitioner. It's a moving meditation for me. I find that yoga teaches how to be Calm in an uncomfortable position, how to handle physical and psychological pain, and how to work through that. And so, having a daily yoga practice has been something that has really helped keep me centered. But I also draw a lot of strength and inspiration from survivors. And I try and meet with groups whenever I can uh, to bring them into the department or to go to where they are. I'm leaving next week for a trip to the Central African Republic and to Ethiopia, where I hope to meet with civil society organizations and others to hear their stories. They are always a source of inspiration to me. Their never-ending quest for justice. their efforts to keep the hope alive that eventually they will have some measure of, of justice and accountability. I get a lot of strength from speaking with communities in this regard. So I try and get out of the bureaucracy, get out of Washington, get out into the field, meet with people, take their stories on, share those stories the best that I can, and then be inspired by those so that every morning I wake up and I think, what can I do today? to advance justice and accountability somewhere around the world where survivors are demanding it.
0: Ambassador Beth Binscock, thank you very much for joining us on Babel.
2: John, thank you so much for having me.
1: Next, the Middle East Program's new research associate, Lubna Youssef, continues the conversation with John and Natasha. John, Natasha, thank you so much for joining me.
0: Thanks, Lubna, and welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much. I'm really, really excited to be a part of Babel. You've had such an interesting conversation with the ambassador, John, about accountability in Syria. But what I found interesting was talking about how important documentation is. And I was wondering if you or Natasha can speak to the extent of the abuses that we're talking about here when it comes to Bashar al-Assad's regime, in terms of scale, as well as who's doing the documentation and why is it important?
3: I think there are two main streams of war crimes and human rights violations, both of which are particularly staggering in the case of Syria. And one I would refer to as sort of collective punishment. So I would put in that category the deliberate and constant attacks on critical civilian infrastructure, healthcare workers, aid workers, civilians themselves. And just to give you a sense of that scale, just in terms of hospitals, there's been over 600 attacks and about 90% of those documented attacks on hospitals had characteristics of deliberate targeting, which is important for the documentation of war crimes. I'd also put chemical weapons use and sieges in this category. And just again, to give you a sense of the scale, we're talking about 300 documented incidents of chemical attacks and around 5 million people in besieged and hard to reach areas at the peak of that. And for some of that aerial targeting, we actually have minute by minute evidence I used to work with the White Helmets and as part of our work, there was a huge network of spotters throughout the country following the trajectory of the planes conducting this aerial bombardment. In some cases, you could listen to the intercepted communications between pilots and those on the ground. And this for our purposes was for warning civilians to take cover, but they've also become part of the evidence. So pilots in some cases were aiming for specific coordinates that matched the coordinates of hospitals, which the Russian military knew. And there was a consistency to these war crimes, which ensured that we had to warn civilians not to do specific things, not to gather in large spaces. Children would actually be released from school in waves so that there wouldn't be a cluster of children together that the regime in Russia could strike. People tried to get in and out of hospitals as fast as possible. We had medical mobile units. For the serious civil defense or the White Helmets, we disperse centers in smaller centers so that they weren't one big target.
0: And then to answer the other part of your question of, of how do we know, I mean, so many people have cell phones. A lot of people in the Middle East and even in countries like Syria, there's a lot of poverty, have smartphones. So people can document from multiple angles simultaneously and send the images back and forth. There's this effort to collect and record in the same way that here in, in American society, it feels like everything is recorded by cameras, by, by people around you. It's posted on to Facebook. It's even true in war zones. And when you have these horrible abuses that affect more than 10 million people, you can document every single one of them.
3: And furthermore, the war crimes that, that you were alluding to In your conversation, those who have been detained and disappeared, and the scale is horrendous, as you were noting, and we know a lot of information about these, because so many people have been through this prison system. And I think that, you know, we talk about the number of over 100,000 people that have been detained or disappeared to this day. But upwards of 500,000 people have been through the prison system since 2011. So we have a lot of testimony. In addition to photographic evidence, the military photographer known as Caesar risked his life to deliver tens of thousands of of pictures of of bodies that had been tortured and killed in these prisons. So there's lots of forensic experts that are able to do further documentation on some of these bits of evidence that can get out too.
1: That is a very shocking image in terms of the numbers in what was done. And speaking about the Syrian population, you've mentioned how, you know, millions and millions have been displaced. Many people have been forcibly disappeared. And when we talk about accountability and transitional justice, oftentimes that includes this very fundamental element of pulling in the victims and pulling in the population. That said, and keeping in mind that the conflict has been going on for over ten years now, what does that mean for what shape accountability would take in Syria today?
0: Well, it's really hard. As we were talking about in the interview, we're used to thinking about accountability. Against countries that lost against forces that lost, and so therefore there's some international jurisdiction there's a new government that comes in that is able, as did in South Africa with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, to hold people to account and to address the grievances of the victims. when the bad guys win, and in Syria the bad guys are winning, how do you persuade them how do you convince them to have any measure of accountability, because in the view of the government, uh, they were fighting terrorists for the very survival of the state, and the state survived. So they feel vindicated in using all the tools that they've used, however violent, however abhorrent they are. They said, we were in a battle for our survival against terrorists, against ISIS. You even agreed ISIS was terrorist, And You have to fight fire with fire, and this is what it took. But we have a country at the end of the day. And I think that one of the real challenges for Western states that care about having some form of accountability is how do you deal with governments like Russia that actively oppose accountability or regional governments and others that don't care about accountability and it can be that these Western states end up in a minority. There are still tools, especially when people travel, you can block things. But in terms of genuine accountability, especially given the scale of the abuses that have happened here, to really go through and root out like the Nuremberg trials. right? But the Nuremberg trials were about people who lost the war. What do you do for people who won the war? And it's troubling
3: I think it's never terribly clean cut. There's criticisms of all kinds of transitional forms of justice, even when the perpetrators lost. Because sometimes they lost because the people accepted an amnesty and then the population was able to move on. And if you look at Colombia right now, there are hearings on television with military officers admitting specifically to war crimes on television. But it's because of an amnesty right so i think that there are oftentimes really uncomfortable compromises that need to be made in order to get some measure of accountability some measure of transitional justice sometimes it looks like truth and reconciliation sometimes it looks like reparations or just simple acknowledgement of what happened and in some rare cases you get actual trials and real justice but it's not it's not usually that that clear cut even in in cases not as complex as as Syria.
1: I think it's interesting because When it comes to victors of a specific conflict, they tend to be the ones who kind of write history in their own terms. John, you mentioned Russia. They've constantly been there to protect Syria as their client. They've vetoed and blocked so many resolutions. What do you think can be done in terms of circumventing this Russia issue? How can we, as an international community, work towards putting more pressure on Syria while also removing the Russia protection barrier.
0: The Security Council has always allowed Russia and the United States to block actions that they oppose against their partners and allies. And we've seen this with the U.S. exercising vetoes on any number of resolutions that were directed against Israel. And we saw the Soviet Union for decades protecting its client states, and now we see Russia which went through a period of relative cooperation with the Security Council, increasingly aggressively using Security Council to protect its interests. Russia has still been largely constructive on issues like the Iran nuclear file, but the Security Council has been an increasingly difficult place to get Russian cooperation. It may be that the people in the U.S. government will decide to use Syria as a way to undermine Russia, to look at what Russia is doing in Ukraine, which obviously the the Security Council can't do anything about because Russia is one of the parties. But it may be that people will look at some of the events in Syria or some of the actions Russia takes in Syria as a way to undermine Russia in Ukraine, to, to talk about Russian abuses in Syria and Russian abuses in Ukraine. But in some ways that takes a really human conflict And it escalates it into a political game. It doesn't deal with the problems of what a post-conflict Syria will look like. But I'm not sure there's a way to get Russia to be cooperative on this because Russia distrusts this whole system of accountability for fear that will be used against Russia. And to be fair, the United States is not party to the International Criminal Court. Because of a sense, the International Criminal Court would be turned against the United States.
1: And, you know, we've been speaking about Syria. And I'm wondering if maybe it would be helpful to take a step back and also see if there are any examples in the region that we can draw from in terms of how they dealt with accountability post-conflict. And I say that because at one point the ambassador speaks about, you know, the fissures in society in Syria and how they're creating challenges or will create challenges for accountability. And I couldn't help but think about maybe Iraq. And if that's a similar situation, do you think there are any examples out there for us to examine and learn from? Well, I mean,
3: again, I think that, that Syria is interesting in the sense that just the sheer level of war crimes, the likes of which we have not seen. But some other examples I've seen from the region is I used to work for an organization called the Center for Civilians in Conflict, and a big part of their work stream was working on Iraq and working on some of these other countries where the U.S. military intervened and may have not been responsible for war crimes per se, but was certainly responsible for civilian casualties. And so a big work stream for us was getting the U.S. government to acknowledge their responsibility for civilian harm in Iraq and Afghanistan and also providing compensation for the victims, which, you know, at least personally for me, leaves a bit of a bad taste in my mouth (laughs) to think that you would lose a child and then get $1,000 or something like that in return. But it's a way of accepting responsibility for your actions, which is, you know, one way to look at it. The other is, again, this universal jurisdiction. I believe it was a court in Europe that was going to take Ariel Sharon, basically, to task the former prime minister of Israel. And I don't think it worked out, but that was another way of of going about it. But unfortunately, I think what we've seen through the region is that accountability is, you know, what happened to Gaddafi, his body being dragged through the streets, sometimes trials with sort of questionable underpinnings (laughs) That's not great either, I think, for accountability.
0: But importantly, I mean, there's accountability for losers. Saddam Hussein had a trial, right, led by or facilitated by the United States, even though it was principally carried out by Iraqis. You know, when it comes to winners, you had tremendous violence in Algeria in the 1990s. How much accountability there was, I mean, realistically, the winners aren't held accountable in that way because... The narrative, as we talked about before, the narrative is this was necessary to preserve the state. I think that the challenge that we have is if we move to a point where on the one hand we have much better documentation of atrocities, but you also have people who stay in power after committing the atrocities, what happens then? And and to me, that's a, a problem for people in these societies when you can't just paper it over. It's a problem for Western states because you have to really decide what you're gonna do about it. And I think it's a problem for the whole world. I mean, are we really going to say this is okay? I think it's easy to ignore and say, well, it's just reports. You know, there are people, there are two sides to that. But when you begin to be able to document as thoroughly as, as is being documented in Syria, it's hard to say it's just reports. And where does that take us? And I don't think we know that yet, but I think it's going to be a really important set of questions for the next decade as we see more conflicts more exhaustively documented.
1: John, Natasha, thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Lubna. Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSS website, and you can find us on Twitter at MidEast.